This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we introduce a new guest we'll be hearing from from time to time. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. The firm specializes in federal employees. Tiago joins me in studio with a look at this coming autumn and what Fed should be thinking about financially as 2024 grow, draws closer. Tiago, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And let's talk about the perennial question of using the Roth TSP option a lot of feds, I think a lot of people that invest in any kind of IRA wonder what is the right choice to go with a Roth or to go with the standard where you pay your taxes at the time of the investment. Yeah, Tom, I think you know the name of the game is figuring out when are you going to owe the least amount of taxes. You know, when you think about the taxes that you're going to have to pay, you owe the taxes at some point. And so if you think about what your tax bracket is right now, relative to what your tax bracket might be later in life, then you can start to determine, okay, does it make sense to pay the taxes right now, use the Roth, compared to later? Because we have things like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that will be sunsetting, which means that it's going to go back to the old tax rates here in a couple of years unless there's no law changes. And so if that happens, then federal employees can expect to see tax rates bump up by 3 or 4%. Right. And so if you consider what rates will be three or four percent from now compared to now, you might think, okay, well, maybe we do a Roth contribution, a Roth conversion. Uh, You can't convert within the TSP, but you can switch to Roth contributions. And so you get to save yourself a couple of points in taxes here. And then that money gets to grow totally tax free for the rest of your life. Right. To clarify, the Roth option you pay with after tax dollars so that they are not taxed upon withdrawal. Mm -hmm. That's right. All right. And there's a complication to this calculus, though, because the standard model is you retire, your income goes down, your taxes are lower. Great. That's why you have an IRA, non-Roth. But the reality is a lot of people and a lot of feds uh, work after they retire from the federal government. In fact, at the higher levels, they go on to sometimes executive positions at contractors and companies where they continue to ply their expertise. And that can last another 10, 12, 15 years after the official Fed retirement, and then you could be in a situation where you're still working, yet you have reached the required minimum distribution stage. So how the heck do you calculate all that in terms of the least tax liability? Yeah, that's that's really tough, because if you're expecting to be earning through your retirement years and still right up to your RMD or minimum distribution, then you could be sitting on a tax bomb, especially if your whole life you've contributed to traditional TSP or pre-tax TSP. And so you want to make use of possibly these years that we have slightly reduced rates right now, um, unless Congress changes the tax laws coming up here in a couple of years. Now, the key with earning beyond your federal service is understanding where your tax rates will be in the future relative to where they are now. So you can do some income projecting. If you are maxed out at the you know 183,500, whatever the GS15 top max is right now, what do you think you're going to be earning if you're not working in federal service? You might be earning more, you might be earning less, depending on how much time you want to commit to that. And so try and project out your income and think about where will your, your income be. 
If you have your minimum distributions from the retirement accounts, those also stack on top of your income. And so you get to see where your bracket falls and determine how much taxes are you paying then, right? Compared to what you would be paying now if you were to just do the Roth contribution right now or if you were to do a Roth conversion. And can you get the calculus close enough? say, with your own financial or tax advisor, such that you might opt for voluntarily lower income because you might net more and you'll have more take-home for that you know, pen collection you want to keep building when you're in retirement because of that tax effect. Yeah, for sure. Because if you- Don't pay me so much. I don't want to hit the tax bomb. Exactly. Exactly. And we see that with a lot of retirees. They do an analysis of what it would look like if they didn't do Roth at all, then they're maxed out on their minimum distributions versus if they just pay a little bit of taxes along the way. And if you can get yourself into lower brackets in retirement, think about retirement is as long as your career for most people. And so if you can be in low tax brackets for as long as you were working in retirement, then you're paying the least amount of taxes compared to if you were to just go ahead and pay the taxes when you're actually working. And so that's something that a lot of people can do in A scenario and a B scenario to try and figure out what would be the overall estimated tax liability throughout my whole life if I did a Roth versus if I didn't. And sometimes we'll find people take a couple of years off between federal service and post-retirement work. They, those are years that their income has gone way down, right? And so you might consider doing accelerated Roth conversions, fill up those tax brackets up until whatever bracket you're comfortable, maybe the 22, right? Because that might prevent you from being in the 28 or higher later, depending on how big your retirement account is. Which also shows, you know, how tax policy affects so much in the economy and just, you know, everybody's worried about a recession, yes or no, at the moment. Imagine what happens if tax rates shoot up three or four percent in a couple of years. That's right. You know, say what you want, but that could really have a recessionary impact on yep. the economy. Well, if my retirement lasts as long as my career, that means I'll live to 117. <laughs> don't think that's going to happen. I don't really want it to happen, to be right. honest. I'm going to be the world's first 117-year-old. And speaking of the economy, you know, it's rocky right now in terms of the gyrations of the market, even though the fundamentals look good in some sense, they don't look so good in other. Let's talk about what you call the G-fund trap, which is just that idea of defaulting to the safest fund because you don't know what's going to happen can really not be such a great strategy. Yeah, especially when we think long-term. Inflation is the silent retirement killer. And so when we look at what the impact of inflation is over 10, 20, 30 years, if, you're not, if your investments are not outpacing that inflation plus the spending that you're doing, you could be in a situation where you're running out of money before you run out of time. And so the G Fund struggles in outpacing inflation because it's not designed to do so. The G Fund is designed to be principal protection, and it does give you some interest rate along the way. But when markets become volatile, investors have this visceral response of protecting what they've worked really hard for. And they get into this emotional trap of, of trying to protect as it's going down. But the, the issue and why it's a trap is, when are people actually ready to get back into the markets? Right? If we think about the flows of the different TSP funds earlier this year. The TSP gave us information, uh, you know, I think it was around April, May, June, billions of dollars were flowing back into the CSNI fund from the G fund. And the reason billions of dollars were moving back are because federal employees were saying, hey, they're paying well this year. But the challenge is you're jumping on a moving train, 
right? The the markets have already begun to recover. And so it's taking you a little bit of time mm-hmm. to get comfortable with the markets again to get back in. And the chances are is you already missed a big part of that recovery. And that's why it's a, such a trap because you're scared to get back in because you were just punished for being in the CS&I fund in the markets. But then by the time you're ready to get back in, you've likely already missed a big chunk of that return already. And that's where federal employees uh, can trade themselves into oblivion sometimes. Yeah, you're selling low and buying high. Essentially. Timing, chasing, never a good idea for the average single investor, is it? Yeah. And in fact, I think consistently timing the markets correctly, I don't believe is very possible. You know, I think it's really hard to do that over an entire lifetime. There may be periods of times here and there where you can get the timing right, and that's great, you know. But I think in the long run, it's really hard to do that. Like winning in Las Vegas. That's right. People never tell you how lousy they did, they just tell you when they hit that one machine. <laughs> We're speaking with Tiago Glieger. He's a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. And we are on the doorstep of open season. And there's a lot of changes because of OPM rules, for example, the coming infertility benefit payments that will be available to, I guess, those on the childbearing age feds. This is a time when you also got to do some real hard thinking rather than default to just sticking with the plan you might have now. Yeah, I think that a lot of federal employees are on cruise control during open season. They're happy with their plan because they didn't have any issues with their plan. But I think what they don't realize is they could be saving money by making sure that they have the right benefits in place. So, for instance, sometimes we see people ramp up their benefits when they have kids or maybe they have some procedures that are coming up. And they kind of stick with that plan for a long time and they don't ratchet it back down for the, you know, the less premium plans when they have lesser needs. And so that's some money that you could be saving. Uh, the other component is Fegley. You know, the life insurance, that's a really big area where we either see people overinsured or underinsured. And so going through an exercise of understanding what we would call with our clients the, uh, the life insurance gap, how much life insurance is actually appropriate for you, because it does get expensive over time. You don't want to be paying for more than you actually need, because that's money that you could be paying yourself and investing for your future, right? Uh, so sometimes you don't need the full 5X. Sometimes you need a little bit more than just the basic depends on your specific circumstance. And open seasons are a really good time to, to really review those coverages. You know, the, the other issue we often see is, and this is a little, a little rare, but sometimes people have spouses in the private sector. They have really interesting benefits as well sometimes, especially if they're unions or something like that. A lot of feds will choose to use those health insurance benefits during their employment because it may offer slightly better benefits. Well, the challenge is if you're going to go retire from federal service, you may not be eligible to keep FEHB in retirement at that point because you have to have had it for at least five years. And so we encourage folks to take open season to really look at where your timeline is. How far are you from retirement? Is that a factor for you? Because you may not be eligible if you've been using your spouse's plan. Right. That could even mitigate to the point where someone would want to work an extra year to get to the five-year mark. Because health insurance, I think health care and health is the biggest worry people have in retirement after they are somewhat reassured they have enough money to not outlive. Right. And and the health insurance, the FEHB is one of the better benefits, in my opinion, that federal employees have in retirement. Um, And I think that a lot of people don't realize, too, is it doesn't cover long-term care. So that's the other part of taking care of your health in retirement. Your health care is a big part of your retirement. And long-term care insurance, as we know, Tom, the federal long-term care program is on pause right now. 
You right. know, what will rates be when they come back? What will the policies look like? That's all up in the air, and it creates a lot of uncertainty for Feds. And so I think taking the time during open season to really drill down into what you need for your family is a good time. Yes, the long-term care insurance industry has been kind of withering for a long time, higher and higher premiums and less and less their defined benefit payouts or defined timeline payouts. And so you could still even out-need your insurance for long-term care because they only do two, three years or something instead of as long as you need it anymore. Right. And we, you know, with the advances, advancements of medical technology, we're helping people live longer, but not necessarily entirely healthier. And so you're absolutely right. There could be a circumstance where people are outliving their benefit. Yeah. And then uh, it might be better just to check out instead of making it to 117. <laughs> See you later. See you on the other side. All right. Anything else year-end? I mean, it's it's only September, but for all intents and purposes, you know, next thing you know, it's Thanksgiving, Halloween, and then New Year's Eve. Right. Yeah. I think at the end of the year, we encourage federal employees to be thinking about their non-retirement accounts. There's things like tax loss harvesting that you can do on investments that are not inside the TSP that you can help basically save yourself in some taxes that are going to be owed. If you are in that required minimum distribution age, this is when you want to start thinking about how much needs to come out, what investments are going to be sold to kind of handle that distribution, how much is your tax liability going to be, and how are you going to pay those taxes. Uh, and this also includes inherited accounts. You know, a lot of people that inherited Roths think, well, the Roth doesn't have an RMD, so the inherited Roth doesn't have an RMD either. That's not the case. An inherited Roth account does have an RMD after the, per- the original owner has passed away. And so we found a lot of feds that have inherited those, account- those accounts and not recognized, hey, they should have been taking a distribution after they inherited it. There's no taxes because it's a Roth, but there is a minimum distribution that has to occur. And if you don't do it, the IRS doesn't like that. Right. And if you inherit a regular IRA, you can wait and withdraw it all in the 10th year rather Correct. than take it year by year. Yeah, you can. Although the regular IRA, that full amount is taxable. So depending on how big that account is, then you're thinking about, you know, if it's a $200,000 account, you take it all in the same year, that's $200,000 of extra income ta- or extra income that gets put on your bracket that now you owe taxes. And if you're still working, maybe you're now in the 400, 500 ta- uh, income tax for the year, you might be in a higher tax bracket if you had waited versus if you do it incrementally at a time. So some planning has to come to place. All right. Well, the summer season is over. Time to get down to planning. Thanks so much. Tiago Glieger is a wealth advisor with RMG Advisors of Rockville, Maryland. Good to have you with us. Thanks for joining. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, an external critique of the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. The Thrift Savings Plan, according to our next guest, is neither structured nor staffed in order to get the best returns for its investors. And he's got some ideas to reform it. So for this view of the TSP, Drew Friedman and I spoke with Steve Deutsch, proprietor of Institutional Investing Enhancement, LLC. And Steve, begin by telling us what Institutional Enhancement, LLC does and what your experience is with the TSP. Yeah, my experience with the uh, TSP is that I was the former Deputy Chief Investor 
investment officer uh, during 2020. And uh, prior to that, I was managing retirement plans all over the world, defined contribution and defined benefit plans for underwriters laboratories. And prior to that, I was uh, with Morningstar analyzing investments, institutional investments, or the buy side. And my experience now is I run my own consulting firm trying to help corporate and nonprofit owners, asset owners, really provide retirement plans that provide a total benefit to their participants and beneficiaries, make it as fully realized a pension plan as possible so that people get a safe and secure retirement. And you have said that the TSP board itself is fundamentally structured and populated for optimal investment returns, not. And uh, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, my my basic uh, observation, having worked now for the, the TSP and uh, observing its actions uh, beforehand and subsequently, it, there's no lack of governance or oversight that's being attempted for the thrift savings plan. I'd say the overall problem, uh, Tom and Drew, is that it's uh, ineffective governance, whether it's you know from Congress, the FRTIB board itself, EBSA, the employees' um, arm for overseeing uh, the, the the plan as well. They have like an employee thrift advisory council. And now I know Congress is proposing a, an inspector general. It's, yeah, there's like lots of oversight, but it's ineffective and ineffective in a variety of examples, very startling things in terms of uh, lacking basic governance documents, like the very important uh, points of having like an investment policy statement, a written investment policy statement for all of your various investment funds, or really keeping close track on the performance and the relative performance of the TSP funds to indices or to private sector competitors. And uh, Steve, you know, one example here that we've seen more recently with FRTIB and, and their management of the TSP was this rollover to a new record keeper just last summer. Just as an example, you know, that was something that had a lot of issues, at least at the front end. From your perspective, what led to some of the challenges there? Well, I'd say, Drew, one thing would be certainly that uh, they just don't seem to appreciate the the complexity of record keeping and how the industry has changed over the past several decades. There's far fewer record keepers today. It's a very complex business. It's highly sophisticated. Fidelity and Vanguard and other companies that are in the record keeping business continuously invest in it. So it's odd, it's unusual, it's not recommended to build a system from the ground up, which is what the FRTIB decided to do for the TSP participants. And another problem that I'd say is that they didn't learn from history. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, approximately in 2003, they did their last major record keeping upgrade. And that too was a total disaster to the point where they had extended congressional hearings on it. And one of the main outcomes from that was saying, if they do it in the future, they should closely supervise the implementation of the record keeping system. And unfortunately, that did not occur. The board uh, was just being sort of complacent and the administration kept telling them everything's fine. We're moving forward just fine. And then, of course, you see the end results, which was just a total botched effort to implement the system and an incredibly burdensome experience for the TSP participants. We're speaking with Steve Deutsch. He is proprietor of Institutional Investing Enhancement, LLC. And getting back to the question of returns, I mean, in general, federal employees are satisfied with the returns, and most of the the reports we hear say the returns are at least on par with average. What's your sense of TSP returns, given the governance and investment strategy 
that is maybe not disclosed explicitly compared to some of the indices, in your view? Yeah, I, I would say when the, the TSP was created under FIRSA in 1986, perhaps, you know, it was a, a better time at that point. Uh, maybe the industry wasn't a, at the same level in terms of being al- allocated to target date funds and so forth, like the L funds and the, and the TSP. But what's really changes is really that the fundamental dynamics of the industry have, have transformed. The TSP, of course, constantly emphasizes low cost, low cost, low cost. I would say that the private sector has certainly caught up and surpassed them in, in that respect in, in many regards. And you're getting, yes, average returns, mediocre. I mean, they, they, they meet the category averages for the most part at some point, but longer term performance, you know, over five or 10 years, it clearly there's a lot of competitors that are providing better returns. And then on top of that, when you have something like the mutual fund window, which was recently implemented along with the system, the new record keeping system, that mutual fund window is incredibly expensive relative to the private sector. And that is an abandonment, I think, by the FRTIB uh, and the administration of their fiduciary duty, that is to look after the best interests of the TSP participants. The mutual fund window that they've implemented because of the executive director of the FRTAP has a personal bias, which he stated at several meetings that I attended. He said he did not want the mutual fund window to be low cost. He wanted it to be expensive in order to steer people to remain in the TSP core funds. And that is, again, not decision-making in the best interests of the TSP participants. That's a breach of fiduciary duty. The board should have caught that. And I mean, right now they're charging a $150 administration fee and close to $30 for a trade. And you compare that to Vanguard and Fidelity, and there's no comparison. They're far, far lower costs to do trades through uh, a full brokerage window, not a, not just a mutual fund window alone. So that, I'd say, yeah, the returns are pedestrian. At the TSP, you've got a very high cost and a lot of bias in that mutual fund window. And then on top of it, you've got the horrible record-keeping service and the administration of the plan. It, it's just not a, a fully realized total reward. It's it's a blown opportunity. And it's really, you know, people constantly say, thank you for your service. The way the TSP set up, it's like, no, thank you for your service. And Steve, you know, you've gone through a lot of different challenges here and a lot of reasons where you see issues with the FRTIB. From your perspective, how would you reform the board or what, what would be some ways or recommendations that you would encourage them to improve or help participants more through through navigating the TSP? Yeah, I would say that my my basic observation then, Drew, is is you know it's it's the year 2023. We're in a, a country to, devoted to capitalism and, and free enterprise. There's no unique mission here to running a, a retirement plan, and under their current record, they really don't have a lot to to boast about. So I would say that it would really make sense to just say keep the TSP, but put the oversight really with a light board in the private sector and then switch everything over to private sector record keeping and a small, small board, much along the lines of, let's say, the Australian superannuation fund, where they are just lightly observing where are the best funds for participants to invest in, and they, they sort of recommend and steer them in that way. But fundamentally, I'm just saying there's no need for a socialized or, or government-run 
retirement plan in 2023, again, in the United States, where, you know, it's capitalism, free enterprise, and there's what's been occurring is they're poorly reinventing the private sector wheel, and they're using a substantial amount of effort and money and time that could be, you know, much better allocated to the uh, TSP participants' benefit. You don't need to spend $500 million a year to provide this level of performance or service. Steve Deutsch is proprietor of Institutional Investing Enhancement, LLC, and we do plan to reach out to the TSP to get its point of view, and we'll bring you that interview as well. That's it for this week's Fed Life. We'll be back next week with more of what you need to know about your career planning and financial life. Until then, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life.